0: This is Roger Green, host the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations around the general topic of COVID-19 and fatty liver disease. Donna Crier and Stephen Harrison start this conversation by discussing the importance of post-vaccine immunologic testing for immunocompromised patients, with Donna using her own testing experience and feelings about it as an example. Also, Louise Campbell discusses lessons from the United Kingdom, where the vast majority of patients have been vaccinated, where new COVID infections and hospitalizations have not been eliminated, but hold at a low, stable weekly rate, all using the AstraZeneca vector vaccine, which was originally scorned but may prove to be more stable in the long run than the RNA vaccines used in the U.S., Israel, Germany, and other countries. This episode covered 10 separate topics in 50 minutes, so the conversation moves quickly and energetically. Don't miss a word, but just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group.
1: Donna Cryer. Grateful for the networks that were set up by CVS and Walgreens, and, and bringing vaccines into into communities because it was less than you know twenty four hours from seeing my test results, seeing that big fat zero <laughs> um, response, talking to my doctor, signing up at CVS and getting a vaccine. It, it made it very seamless. That issue of test results, though, I, I do want to push the medical community on. I know that they are pushing back on patients getting tested for their you know own personal sort of antibodies and. Vaccine effectiveness, and while I understand that there are multiple parts of the immune system, I would like the medical community to come to a consensus quickly in terms of a test, or just let all of us take the lab course semi-quantitative antibody test, like we have in the Hopkins study. Because otherwise, outside of those who, like me, who are in clear categories who are taking drugs that have been studied and have a clear immunosuppressive effect, how do you give information to an Ash patient or a cirrhosis patient, for example? On if they need a booster, how soon, when, is it waning? Is it waning for them? How are we going to do that if not to test? And I also feel sorry for the doctors who are, you know, if people are being told, well, ask your doctor, what's your doctor supposed to be making, having that conversation with you about? Is it just supposed to like wave his hand at you and be like, you look like a non-responder. I don't know what a doctor is supposed to use as a basis for that conversation unless we start having a test that gives people's more personalized Response. Stephen Harrison.
2: Donna, can you expand on that a moment? Were Mm -hmm. you saying that you had your immunity to COVID-19 tested after your two vaccinations mm-hmm. and were found to have no antibody titers remaining?
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah my, I, had no, I had no response to the vaccine to the first two doses.
2: Do you know if you had initial response and then it waned over time? No, or
1: I had nothing. I had nothing. I had zero before my first dose, zero after my first dose, zero after my second dose, and then I had a response after my third dose.
2: And did you change vaccination manufacturers or did did you use, okay. I did,
1: based on the data on transplant recipients, yes.
2: Got you. Okay, so just like we know that there are varied responses to Delta variant and all variants to some of the different vaccinations that are out there, the response among at least the immunocompromised could be widely varied as well. And I don't think that's a message that's clearly delivered. I mean, heck, we're still at the KISS principle, right, Donna? Keep it simple, stupid, just go get vaccinated. We, we just want you to line up and, and, and put your arm out. But much like we're learning with hepatitis B, for instance, we need to dive into it maybe a little bit more in particular high-risk patients. We need to be doing actual testing after we vaccinate to see if it actually has allowed the body to build up am- antibodies, because otherwise, we're still at ground zero, right? That, I don't think, is a message that's getting out there. I don't, Louise, I don't know if that's uh, in the UK, if that's getting out there, but it's certainly in the circles I run in in Texas is not something that that we're talking about much, and, and maybe that's apropos to our cirrhotics as well, and those with significant NAFLD. I am reminded of another recent paper that is a meta-analysis of seven studies with 2,041 COVID-19 patients, where it was clearly shown that, uh, that fatty liver disease increased the risk of severe COVID. Now, we've known that, but here's a meta-analysis that actually put the risk at 80% increased threshold over a non-fatty liver patients. So, I think your point is one that we need to drive home. And that is, it's not only about getting a vaccine, it's about ensuring that the vaccine did what it was supposed to do.
1: Right. And I and I have to admit, I delayed by a little while getting the effectiveness you know, test after the second one because I didn't want my heart broken because I wanted to go out. I wanted to go to the base. I was like, I wanted to believe that it had worked, that it was effective. But I, I saw the data and I knew patients who'd gone before me earlier in the study and I knew the chances were very low given everything that I'm taking because I'm having an underlying autoimmune disease. I'm still, I'm taking relatively high doses of my immunosuppressants for my transplant. I'm also on biologics for my Crohn's disease. And so the chance that my little immune system under the, the weight of all of that, that I was going to be somehow being in the high responders group was low. And I didn't want to face that just as a human being. I didn't want to face that, but I, I wanted the information more. And so I did put on my big girl pants and I went and got the... The test and it said zero. But then my doctors and I could make real decisions. I wasn't wandering around in a delusion that I was protected and getting on planes or going out or becoming loose in my precautions and then getting COVID. I knew what I was dealing with. And so the idea that patients aren't needing information to make decisions today about what they do, where they go, how they do it is something I need us all to, to get over. And that's the urgency with which we're We're hoping this evidence is generated and that we're working to make sure that it gets to policymakers fast enough. And this one little pushback that's in the CDC guidelines and that the Medical Society statements keep making about don't get tested, don't have any effectiveness testing is the next thing that I'm going to be challenging. Just FYI, for anybody who wants to know what's next up on my hit list, that's that's next on my on my hit list. And then after that is making sure that people are aware of monoclonal antibodies, but not using them as a get out of jail free card for not taking the vaccine. I'll just get the antibodies, just hook me up to the antibodies and I'll be fine. It's not for that. But people do need to know that it is available and free in as much as the government has purchased a lot of it. So taxpayers have paid for it and it is available to people. But we should keep it for the vulnerable who are vaccinated but have you know breakthroughs or are otherwise unable to get vaccinated. Not for people who just start believing in science at the moment that they come down with severe COVID. Roger Green. Why don't we
0: shift to the UK a little bit and what's going on there? And then Stephen talking a little bit about what all this means for clinical trials. And then I'll come back and talk a little more about the US from a different perspective. Louise, the floor is yours.
3: Louise Campbell. Just leading on from what Donna was saying, which is absolutely great work, is it, it's about the uptake within those clinical groups as well um, that's going to be really important. Now, our latest figures here show that we've got about 87.7% of the population vaccinated for first doses. Now that slightly fell from last week because what they've now done is combine the age groups and lower the age group to the 16 and over. So therefore we've got 87.7% of the population vaccinated and over 65% now having second doses. We've done really well. The data out of Israel is slightly concerning that's showing breakthrough, but it's breakthrough in the older categories with really large comorbid conditions and really quite unwell, which I suppose is to be expected. I think if we look at the situation that we're currently seeing here, when I last look at the data that was published on Thursday, I think the most latest data is that we've got 6,444 patients in hospital, 928 of those are on ventilators. Now, the last summary that I got from Bart's Health or uh, we were discussing within our teams was that 100% of all of those COVID cases in ITU were unvaccinated. The strength in the vaccination that we're seeing is very good. We're fairly stable at around about 27 to 35, uh, 32,000 cases a day. Our hospital rate of 6,400, 6,000 is fairly static. So we're a nation who has come out with a a large rollout of vaccination. It's been readily accepted throughout the country. We're now into more of the vaccine hesitancy populations. And I certainly have more conversations with the vaccine centre when I do some of that. But we're not overly seeing, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not an immunologist, I'm not currently working in an acute setting, is that we're not seeing massive breakthrough. And there's a big debate here at the moment that you may or may not be aware of as to whether we go ahead with booster program, whether or not we should be waiting to see whether there is a group that need the booster population. Donna's grouping of immunocompromised are already acknowledged to be one of those groups that are going to probably need the vaccine boosters for exactly the reasons that she's demonstrated and detailed here. We're also now preparing for the flu vaccination season to be able to vaccinate both flu and a booster if we needed to. As part of certainly my preparation for that, we're doing the flu vaccine courses. It would be interesting to know what the uptake with COVID has been within the liver population and those with liver disease. Does that? Do you know that within the US, Donna or Stephen, as to what the overall uptake for COVID has been within um, the liver disease population? Because you fought very hard to give people access and to really promote that. So do you know at it all? It's been
1: high. And the first round was just anecdotal evidence from a lot of Facebook communities, which is sort of a, a biased, engaged group. There were... Were a recurring set of themes about why people might have been reluctant. First, it was timing early on. We saw that overcome as more transplant recipients got the vaccine and the mild side effects and the transient nature of the side effects reassured a lot of people. I think this full authorization today may not affect a large number of people who have vaccine hesitancies or whatever, but for our folks who are following the science, there's a significant section that this will make a difference, too. The concerns were for people who already have a lot of immunological mischief or complexity going on, and to add something else to it, they just wanted to get more information from their doctors, and we're waiting for clarity of information from from their medical societies where there that now exists. There were just there were just a few holdouts, more of pregnant women and folks on on that that everybody understands why they'd be skeptical, particularly since there was no they were not in the trials as well. So overall, I would say the liver population more than the general population is very pro vaccine. And for the transplant recipients, it's it's more about protecting the gift and the conversations that we heard throughout the community were you have to get vaccinated not for yourself, but to honour the gift that you've been given.
3: The reason I'm particularly asking that question is when I've been doing the flu data and the stuff that we've got to, the chronic liver disease patients are a high risk group for the flu vaccine and recommended for flu. Yet the uptake in the UK for 2021 was only 37% of those of the liver population took the flu vaccine. But when I was looking at the figures, the data that they produced between the clinical risk groups, September 2010 to May 2011, showed that chronic liver disease made up 9% of the fatal flu cases, but their mortality rate per 100,000 was 15.8. And that was in comparison. The next largest, the immunosuppression group was 20, but after that, it was neurological conditions at 14.7. So the liver disease population was a massive population at risk with age-adjusted, relative risk of 42.2 was the highest outside of the immunosuppressed community. So it would be great to see the liver community. We're, We're forecasting this season a worst flu season because of the lack of immunity last year. So getting not only COVID, but the flu vaccine into our patient population is going to be vital.
1: And now back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, September 8th, with a series of individual interviews with patient advocates and some key opinion leaders discussing what each considers the most important story from the summer. Given some of the recent news and major academic publications and government actions, this should be fascinating to hear. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.